everybody. This is Chris. And Kathy. We wanted to take a minute to thank you all for tuning in. We appreciate every listener and are grateful for this platform. Please help us share our vision by subscribing to our show through your favorite streaming app. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at Petability Podcast. Check out our ever-growing list of affiliates and sponsors. Simply go to the show notes for information and links. And be sure to use our promo code PETPOD22, that's P-E-T-P-O-D-2-2, on checkout to receive your discount from our affiliates. And now, here's a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Alon Landa, CEO of MedcoVet, and I'm a proud sponsor of Petability. We decided to partner with Chris and Kathy because, like them, we want to empower all pet owners who are trying to do the most for their pets. At MedcoVet, we specialize in advanced home laser therapy for pets. Laser therapy is a safe and effective treatment for common conditions like arthritis and wounds, and it relieves pain for most conditions caused by inflammation. With MedcoVet, pet owners can perform this treatment at home while receiving support from experienced clinicians. If you think your pet would benefit from healing at home, visit MedcoVet.com, and one of our clinical experts will work with you to determine if home laser therapy is the right fit for you and your pet. Tell them PetAbility sent you. Welcome to PetAbility. I'm your host, Kathy Simons. And I'm your host, Chris Cranston. Our podcast provides interviews and information to help your pets live their best lives. Good afternoon, Kathy. How are you this fine day? I am doing great, Chris. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. And and I can't believe I'm actually excited about our next topic because it has to do with research. In, you know, in college, like the thing I hated most was research. But I'll tell you what, listeners, once you find out about what Dr. Emily Bray is researching and who her subjects are, you're going to be you're going to be hooked. Emily Bray performs postdoctoral research at Arizona Canine Cognition Center in the School of Anthropology at the University of Arizona and Canine Companions, where she studies how early developmental, behavioral, and cognitive factors impact later life outcomes. So we're going to talk with Emily today. And Emily, is is it okay if I, I actually refer to you as Emily versus Dr. Bray? Yes, that's totally fine. So, Emily, we're going to talk to you today about what your research reveals as you sought to answer many questions by studying the domestic dog. Some of these questions are, how do your earliest interactions affect the rest of your life? Why is impulse control so difficult in some contexts, but not in others? When can we detect warning signs of cognitive decline? What are the characteristics of a successful working dog? And how soon can we tell? And will my puppy outsmart me? The answer is yes. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, it, it really sounds like your research is not only canine focused, but also how we as people might benefit from these uh, study outcomes. So I can't wait to get into it. Welcome, Dr. Emily Bray. Welcome, Emily. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk with you both today. This is something that Chris and I have been pretty excited about for a long time. So I'm so glad that you uh, you agreed to do our show. And I'm just going to jump right in because I'm fascinated with the cognition of, of animals 
And I, I think it would be great if we could start with defining for the audience what what is cognition? Absolutely. So I like to describe cognition um, as basically how an animal perceives the world, processes that information, and then uses that information to make decisions. So you can think about everything from problem solving to memory to impulse control, all of those things fall under that umbrella of cognition. So how does this differ from temperament? Great question. So temperament has to do with how an animal expresses emotion, excitement, things like reactivity, as opposed to that piece about acquiring, storing, and using information. And a lot of actually the research in the dog world, you know, in the past has focused on the temperament piece. And I think that's, you know, for obvious reasons, right? If your dog is aggressive or hyperactive or scared by new places, um, that's really important to know about your dog and to, you know, know what's contributing to that and how to work through it. But we've also in our research these past 10 years become really interested in the cognition piece as well. And part of that has to do with the fact that a lot of the dogs we study are working dogs. And so we're quite literally in their jobs every day, asking them to solve problems, remember commands. And so cognition is really relevant to that. But even with our pet dogs, right, they have to solve problems in their daily lives too. So if I were to sum it up, and maybe this is too simplistic, but Emily, are you are you studying how dogs think? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I sometimes have people ask, you know, I tell them what I do and they're sort of like, Oh, like as if dogs have thoughts, um, which they do. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How did you get into this? Like, you know, let's back up a little bit. I said what you're currently doing and you mentioned, you know, the last 10 years of research. But, you know, give us a synopsis of, of point A to B here. Sure. So I grew up in a household with two veterinarians. And so I've always loved animals. You know, we had dogs growing up. And then when I went to college, it was kind of a stroke of luck. They were just starting the Canine Cognition Center. Um, And so I was obviously immediately intrigued and I went to start volunteering and was so cool because people would bring their pet dogs uh, into onto campus at Duke and we would essentially play games with them for treats and praise. And then that would give us a window into how they were problem solving, what they were thinking. And then my senior year, I ended up going out to California to Canine Companions, which is where I'm currently doing some of my postdoc research. But at the time I was in undergrad, that was kind of my first exposure to service dogs. And I was just blown away. But, you know, because they gave us a tour of campus and and showed us a demonstration of, you know, the dogs at the end of their training and all the tasks that they could perform. And it was so cool to see. And it really, you know, in my mind, begged the question of how did we get to this point? Right. And so I've basically spent the last 10 years looking at exactly that question. (laughs) It kind of makes me wonder, you know, we were talking a little bit about this before we got on the air about service dogs. And so is what the dog's thinking about or their cognition? Does that, is that a factor in what we might consider their intelligence level? So, so for instance, I mean, I have a pug and I think for, I, I think my pug is really smart. Like he does nose work. He's really smart, but he's not like Australian shepherd smart. It's a, sort of a different, and, and I'm wondering, is that part of his cognition and part of his temperament and perception? Yeah. 
So that is a loaded question. So I think yeah. a couple of things. <laughs> so yeah. I think, first of all, when we think of intelligence, it's always, uh, or I think when we think about it, we should always think about it within the context, right? So I think there's different types of intelligences. You know, you could have a dog that has amazing memory, but zero impulse control, right? So there's kind of these different domains and we see definitely individual differences across, across those types of intelligences. And so I think another really interesting point about your question is that you're bringing temperament into it. And I think temperament and cognition absolutely inform each other, right? So for example, you could have the smartest dog in the world, but if they are so timid or hesitant in public situations, they're not going to make a good service dog. Right. And, and even to the point, right, where you might not be reaching your full potential um, in any cognitive trait because temperament traits that you also possess are holding you back or, you know, vice versa. Your temperament so, may dictate sort of that emotional ability or that emotional threshold. Yes, yes, exactly. And it's actually, um, as part of my dissertation research, one of the things that I looked at is we we studied guide dogs and we had them do all these different tasks. And we sort of, you know, in our, as humans, we group them. We're like, okay, this task is a cognitive task because it involves problem solving. Whereas this is a temperament task because it's going to be an unexpected stimuli and we're going to see how they react to it. But, you know, the truth of it is both of those tasks, you know, the dog's are informed by both the dog's cognition and temperament, probably. So when we did all these different tasks, we could basically look at the data and say, you know, how how are these falling out? Like, is it the case that when you look at dog's performance on this, all of the cognitive tasks are grouping together in the way that we're thinking about it? And like all the temperament tasks group together or are they kind of intertwined? And we found the second that they really are intertwined. And I think, you know, when you step back and think about it, that definitely makes sense. So back to intelligence, um, are we able through, through your research or the research of others, quantify intelligence in dogs? And I also, you know, we're kind of getting off, off track here, but you know, earlier when you said there's, there's different types of intelligence and I guess the thing that I equate that to in people are, you know, you have the really book smart people and then you have like the street smart people. In terms of answering that, would you say that, that there's different types that those are kind of the intelligence levels that you're looking at? Yeah. So intelligence. So at least in the human literature, there's sort of this idea of G, right? General intelligence, right? So the idea that um, you can quantify, like IQ, right, would be yeah. your general intelligence. And so... So researchers have been interested in, you know, is there the same construct in dogs? And I, I mean, I think the first problem is, right, how do you measure it? Because obviously mm -hmm. dogs are nonverbal, similar to human infants, right? So honestly, a lot of our, you know, as dog researchers, a lot of the ways that we look at this is totally parallels what developmental psychologists do mm -hmm. when they study our own infants, right, before they can talk and how they figure out, you know, what what are they capable of and, and what does their cognition look like? But so I think what we, at least what we found in our research, and we've done the way that, right, problem number one, how do you quantify it? So we do these behavioral games with them. And we're hoping to get at some of these things, right? Memory, impulse control, social social intelligence, right? So things like, can they follow our point and know that we're trying to tell them something? How 
um, interested are they in us as humans? And do they see us as social partners? You know, that's all a type of intelligence as well. And so we can put all of the same dots through all these different tests. We actually have a battery of tasks that we call the dog cognitive development battery. And it's about 15 different games that, you know, get at all of these different skills. And then we can look and say, you know, is how a dog is performing on each of these tasks related? And if so, you know, it might be something like general intelligence where like, you know, if you have a really smart dog, they're really good at memory. They're really good at impulse control. They're really good at the social stuff across the board um, and vice versa. Uh, but actually what we find in in our studies, and at this point we've had, you know, over 500 dogs participate in these. And really <laughs> there isn't one factor that explains everything. So we aren't really seeing evidence for this general intelligence, but instead, like I was saying, it, it seems like dogs have their specialties, right? And so um, that speaks to kind of, again, the different types of intelligences. Yeah. And you were talking about IQ. And I know that in the human world, we're hearing a lot more about EQ or the, the intelligence. And, and I would imagine like, you know, dogs that mm-hmm. are trained therapy dogs are very empathic and can pick up on, you know, emotional state of their, their human companion and things, whereas another dog may be completely oblivious. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, that's interesting. And I wonder too, I, this is just me thinking aloud because what you're saying is reminding me of this, but I feel like often when we work with dogs, and this isn't even something that we necessarily quantify in our studies, but right, you, and I think, you know, pet owners listening to this is just intuitive, right? Like you can have dogs that are like super motivated by food mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you have other dogs that don't care at all. They're just all about the people. And then you have dogs that like both. And so I feel like that you know, can speak to, right? Like if you have a dog that is truly like motivated by that social component. Um, and again, we haven't actually studied this, this kind of a hypothesis, but you would think that maybe those are the dogs that would do really well in the, the therapy settings. Hmm. Um, yeah, not that, mm-hmm. you know, if they're also mm-hmm. motivated by food, that's a bad thing, but. <laughs> right, 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 right. So uh, Chris and Emily, do you mind if we take a little turn here from um, puppies and and, and talk about maybe the aging populations of dogs and uh, their cognition or maybe their cognitive dis- dysfunction or maybe their cognitive decline. Yeah, absolutely. So um, this actually is a great segue because a lot of my research, we just yesterday tested the last dog as part of our maternal style puppy study. And then we've, we've sort of been starting a new study uh, in conjunction with the Dog Aging Project. And are you guys familiar with the Dog Aging Project? I'm afraid not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the Dog Aging Project is this amazing initiative uh, that's funded by the NIH and it's based out of the University of Washington and Texas A&M University, uh, but collaborates with dozens of universities. And the idea is that the goal is to follow tens of thousands of companion dogs, so people's pets' dogs, over the course of about 10 years. Um, And so listeners today can go sign their dog up. You nominate them on the Dog Aging Project website. And basically what it then entails, it's in, um, well, there's a couple parts to it, but the main part is just an observational study. So once a year, 
you fill out what's called the health and life experiences survey about your dog, which as a dog owner will probably be quite enjoyable to you because it's just an opportunity for you to tell someone all about your dog. Um, (laughs) And we all love to do that. Absolutely. And then we collect that same information year after year. And so the idea is that it's going to become a longitudinal study. And then we have, you know, the most information that anyone has ever collected on everything from feeding habits to exercise to like the environment that your dog lives in. You know, are you like in an urban or suburban or rural area and all sorts of things, the dog's behavior, their medical um, history. And then the idea is that we can follow the dogs over time and just learn a, a lot about the aging process in dogs. And then there's also some components of the project where the dogs actually um, participate in an intervention study. So they're piloting out uh, a drug called rapamycin um, and to see if that can positively impact the aging process. Um, So there's a lot of a lot of exciting science going on around the dog aging project. And my connection with it, other than, so we, we got a puppy recently and I'm anxiously awaiting her turning six months so I can sign her up for the project. Um, but I have been involved in it from a research standpoint and I unsurprisingly am very interested in the aging of the brain and cognition mm-hmm. and how, how those sorts of things change with age. And so, um, We have all this data about dogs and their health conditions and their activity levels and their training histories. And then we also have a separate questionnaire that we have the owners fill out. And it basically tells us about their cognitive functioning. And so these are things, these are behaviors that we ask about. So for example, does your dog pace? Uh, do they, are you noticing any changes in their spatial awareness or sleeping patterns? Are they having difficulty finding food that's been dropped on the ground? So things that we expect might become more relevant as they age. And then we can start to look at, first of all, what does normal aging look like in dogs? You know, what might we just expect because we all get older? And then what is actually dysfunctional? Um, because we know that, you know, in humans, we get, or some of us get Alzheimer's disease. And in dogs, they have a similar uh, disease called canine cognitive dysfunction. Um, and so we are super interested in studying that for many reasons. One, because if we can find early signs of it, then we can also start thinking about preventative steps, which is a huge goal. But also given this kind of parallel with humans, it might even help us figure out stuff about our own species um, right. and studying right. our canine companions. Yeah. Just to, just to um, circle back and, and make a little plug, we did do a, a, a show completely on uh, cognitive dysfunction with Dr. Bronwyn Riggs. Um, so if anybody's interested in learning a little bit more about cognitive uh, canine cognitive dysfunction, you should check that show out. That was a veterinary neurologist that we did that show with. Yeah, fascinating stuff. So I have some follow-up questions on that then, Emily. So thank you because you provided us with a lot of information. The drug that you mentioned earlier that, that they're studying, is that a drug for our pets or is it a drug that they're trying to see if that would be useful in people? Oh, well, so it's definitely for the pets. I, rapamycin is also 
used in people. And I think it's a, it's a hot topic in the aging field in both species. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Because again, I, I used to say this and people would kind of cringe, but I'm like, you know, when I was a studying to become a physical therapist, you know, a lot of the studies were, were done using dogs, you know, to prove that certain modalities worked and, and so mm-hmm. forth. And, and, you know, but, and then we applied them to people. So it makes sense that it would work uh, across species. And then when I was looking through, you know, some of your published paper, papers and things like that, it seemed like I, I noted kind of two big things. Um, mm-hmm. one is that, uh, it seemed like you, it showed that once daily feeding seemed to have mm-hmm. a better long-term outcome in terms of cognitive function. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the other, the other was that the correlation between physical activity and improved mm-hmm. long-term cognitive function. Yes. yes. Okay. Yes. So these are, these are two papers that come out of the dog aging project data, which is super exciting. So they, they are based on data from over 11,000 pet dogs. These are a few caveats. So obviously to get, well, not obviously, but one of the reasons that the numbers are that high and collected over a one year time frame, um, is because these are all owner reported. So that is, both a, a good thing and also, you know, a take with a grain of salt, right? Yeah. Because, you know, as with any survey data, it's it's susceptible to the bias of the people filling it out. Um, however, the fact that there's so many dogs, the hope is that there is, you know, signal above the noise. Um, and so, so yeah, so, and it's also taken from the first year, the first release of data. So it's not yet longitudinal, which means that mm-hmm. it is cross-sectional. In other words, we have all the age groups represented, but each one is an individual dog. In the future, what is amazing about the Dog Aging Project is, like I said, people fill out these surveys year after year, and then you start having what we call longitudinal data, where you can look within the same dog what's happening, and they can kind of serve as their own control. And that's powerful in terms of really determining causality. So in a cross-sectional study, and the, and the papers that we published, their correlations or, or associations, right? So we actually can't, as tempting as it might be, we can't say anything about the causal arrow. Um, so starting with the feeding frequency paper, this one was, was pretty cool. We noticed that, um, you know, when people filled out these surveys, they reported how much they fed their, or how many times per day they fed their dog. Vast majority of people feed their dog two or more times per day. Um, however, about 8% of participants feed their dog just once a day. And this was kind of cool, again, going back to the idea of kind of looking at patterns across species, right? And so we know in humans, there's this idea of um, like, well, and also in rodents, uh, this idea of intermittent fasting being potentially mm-hmm. a, a healthy diet choice. Um, and so the the... the we saw kind of a parallel here with the dogs where we were saying, oh, they just eat once a day. It's basically intermittent fasting. And do we see the positive health benefits that some studies have shown in other species? And so when we look at it, we do see that, How, which is cool. Um, so, But I would say it's more kind of like, oh, let's look at this further. Not mm. like, okay, everyone go yeah. change what you're doing in yeah, terms right, of how right. often you're oh eating your dog. Speaking caveats. But so, because the idea too might be that um, 
A, we weren't able to control for caloric intake. So it might just be that dogs eating once a day are eating less calories and therefore less obese. And that's what is driving the, especially the health stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also, as you mentioned, found, um, the, the cognitive scores were, were better in the, in the dogs that ate just once a day as well. Um, and it's not huge effects also, but we have the power to see that because there's 11,000 dogs in our sample. I just want to make a comment here too, because you said like, you know, these, these are self-reported activities and I can imagine, mm-hmm. you know, my mom saying, Oh yeah, I only feed the cats once a day. And then the, she's giving them <laughs> treats, you know, throughout the day. And, you know, so does that count, you know, when they're getting scraps from the table and all that? Well, they're only getting their dog food. I'm only truly feeding them once a day, but, you know, maybe they're, they're acquiring, like you said, calories, uh, from totally. and things. So, yeah. Yeah. And that, and that could be for sure. But, but at the same time, we did see this effect, which is, which is, you know, there is a difference between those reportedly <laughs> fed once a day and those reportedly fed more. And then the other paper that you mentioned, which is pretty exciting as well, is again, looking at, you know, these over 10,000 pet dogs. And then here we have um, the same cognitive measure, right? This, this um, questions that the, the owners answered about their dog's cognitive activities and changes in their cognitive activities over the past six months. And then we also have their reported um, level of physical activity and what, and um, training history. So in all our models, um, you know, when we do the statistics to, to figure out what the associations are, we have our, you know, predictors of interest, but then we also have all these other factors that are probably playing a role that we want to account for as well. Um, and so this is, you know, things like training history, uh, supplements, right? So like things like fish oil, um, which certain studies show can have positive effects both on health and cognitive function potentially. And, you know, all, the age of the dog, obviously. So all of those things. And, but what we do see is this again, association where dogs who are more physically active, uh, that's associated with less cognitive decline, less cognitive problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and so again, this is really tantalizing and, and kind of in the direction that we might expect if we think that physical activity is having a protective effect on aging, um, which is, you know, been shown in, in humans. But again, this is just our cross-sectional data, so we need more research because it could be that, you know, as dogs lose cognitive function, that's what is causing them to then become less physically active, right? Mm-hmm. So we don't know which way, and it, and it could be, it's probably both. Um, but it, so it's just kind of like an initial step to say like, oh, it's in the direction that we expect. Now let's dig into that further. And so what's exciting is that, you know, we've spent a lot of time talking about this owner reported measures, which have value, but obviously also have, you know, pros and cons. Um, but so what we've been working on over the past couple of years is developing um, actual behavioral tasks that we can bring a dog into the center. Or um, we also have some citizen science tasks where mm-hmm. we give directions to the owners, the dogs in their home, and they're, you know, playing these games, and they kind of report back to us what the dog did. Um, but basically, we want to put them through like a, a physical 
task where we can look at things like that we expect to deteriorate with age. So most importantly, things like memory, same things you would think of in humans, mm-hmm. executive function, right? Impulse control, and actually even, um, kind of, again, sociability measures. So I think that's something that often gets reported with dogs uh, who have canine cognitive dysfunction um, is that there are changes in their the way that they are interacting socially. And it could be mm-hmm. different, right? Like some dogs become clingier, some dogs become more removed, but just that there's a difference in what they used to be and what what's happening now. Mm-hmm. Um, so we so we tried to kind of create these tasks that would key into those things so and it's again to the dog it looks like a game like we have little blinds set up in the room and we hide treats and then they have to wait a certain amount of time or we hide multiple treats so now they have to hold in their minds that there's two places they need to search on some trials and only one place they need to search on other trials so really um and then that gives us and this kind of goes back to a question from earlier of like quantifying intelligence, right? It's like a quantifiable measure that is standardized across all our participants where we can literally give them a score on these given tasks. And then, you know, the idea is that they repeat these over time and then you can look at their performance compared to their past performance. And hopefully this will give us a way to maybe in the future start to pinpoint when problems are emerging sooner than what we would have noticed by just observing them in their day-to-day lives. Um, And that opens the door for early intervention. So Emily, you, you, you know, I just think this whole idea of physical activity and the potential correlation with um, not only improved physical health that, you know, Kathy and I are so familiar with as physical rehabbers, but again, improved cognitive function, um, you know, anecdotally, I've seen this so much. I've had many a parent, and I'm sure, Kathy, you can speak to this too, where, you know, we start going through the physical rehab, but what does that entail? They're doing new activities. They're having to, you know, figure out, you know, how to perform on a piece of equipment. What do we want from them as a stranger? So they're thinking, thinking, um, you know, and having to do just novel, you know, types of things through their, their rehab. And, you know, the pet owner and the pet parent will, will report, you know, like, wow, they're just so much more spunky and, and just seem to be brighter and, um, not so dull, I guess, in, in terms of affect and things. And, and so, you know, that's something that's, that's really exciting to me. And then the other thing that you've mentioned a couple times is, you know, this whole idea of, you know, playing games, whether it's with a puppy or a senior dog. Again, that's a lot of what we employ in our work, right? They don't know that they're going through your research test. They don't know that they're participating in physical rehabilitation because we make it fun and, you know, use whatever reward system, you know, works for them and, and so forth. And, um, so there, I'm just, astounded at, you know, kind of the parallels of, of your work, your research, and, and what we're experiencing through our work. But And also, that's interesting what you're saying about, you, you know, basically, you're having the dogs do physical therapy, which is activity, but that it's also mental exercise, right? Mm-hmm. And, that, and that is another thing that kind of fell out where, you know, I, I mentioned we put other variables into our model, one of which was training history and you know what is training but basically mental exercise Mm -hmm. um and that is also we found associated with decreased cognitive decline um in the same way that increased physical activity is so they i think they definitely go hand Mm -hmm. in hand 
and and they could even be happening at the same time, like you just described. Right. Which is Emily, you talked a little bit about um, just a few minutes ago about impulse control. Can we talk a little bit more about impulse control? Absolutely. Impulse impulse control is a subject near and dear to my heart. That was my my undergrad thesis was on inhibitory control, and so what I was interested in at the time was the different contexts in which impulse control arises. Um, and so, and, and very simply, right, you know, we just have different types of games that all, you know, fall under the umbrella of impulse control. And almost back to this question of, you know, general intelligence, you know, oh, like, if a dog, you know, in one, so what are the different types of games we would play. And one, you, um, this is actually, they do this with babies too. It's called the A not B task. And you take a treat, the dog is watching you, you hide it in a bucket on their left side, and then they can come eat it. And you do that a couple of times. Then you do it again, but before you release them to go eat it, you, they, and they're watching you this whole time, you take it out of the bucket and you walk it across the room and you put it in a different bucket on the right side. And um, what you find is that dogs have a really hard time inhibiting going to where they've been rewarded all those times before, even though they've just watched you put it in a different location. So oh. they'll make they'll make this A not B error and and go to the place that they watched you remove it from. But they're like, you know, the, their muscle memory is kicking and they just it's a failure of impulse control. So you take a scenario like that. Then we have another one where um we have I wish I could show video. It would be so much more entertaining than listening to me talk. But the idea is that you have um imagine like a a Coke bottle, right? Like a cylinder with the, with an end cut off, the sides cut off. And so you show the dog, okay, you know, you put it in the side and they can go around because initially um, it's it's opaque. So they can't see what's inside, but they watch you put your hand in, they follow, they get the treat. Now you give them the same problem, but you make this cylinder transparent. So they see the treat. And even though they've just gone around the side to get the food, you know, five times, they start running into the front because there's a temptation there. Right. So again, impulse control. Um, And then we had a third scenario where it was kind of like delay of gratification. So you'd have a generous experimenter that always gave the dog food and then a stingy experimenter who did not like to share their food. But you put the stingy experimenter closer to the dog. And so the dog just kind of has to walk past them to get to the generous experimenter. But again, that is an inhibitory challenge. (laughs) So you have these three scenarios and you can test dogs on it. And then the question is, you know, is there consistency across these tasks? Like if it's a dog with good impulse control, are they acing all three of the tasks versus, you know, dogs who have no impulse control? Mm -hmm. Um, And again, there's no correlation. (laughs) Like each task was so context specific. Um, And so I think that just speaks to, you know, like the dogs as individuals and what one dog might find tempting, another dog doesn't, but they have a different... (laughs) temptation yeah. right um and so yeah so it's just really interesting and and um one of the so we so we found you know it, it didn't appear to be this kind of like general skill it was truly context specific and then another kind of piece of that um is the uh, you know there's so many factors that contribute to it and one of which is there and this is probably going to come again as no surprise to people that are around dogs a lot but their excitement level right so like you could have the same dog doing a task just fine and then if you get them over excited game over all of a yeah. sudden they can't do the problem that they were doing 5 seconds before with no issues and so that was really interesting and the way that we actually this was kind of a fun 
like science story, you know, it's like, um, how Me? science happens in real life. So mm-hmm. we were doing this task at Canine Companions. So with these, you know, potential future service dogs. And we basically had two teams of experimenters and we had a task. We call it a detour task. Um, so basically you imagine, um, like a queer shower curtain in a V, like in front of, and a, and a person stands like in the apex of that. Mm-hmm. And then stand is kind of squatting down there with a treat. And the idea is that the dog in the original task, the idea was that one side of the barrier was longer. And so we just wanted to see if the dog could kind of figure out the shorter route and, and detour mm-hmm. effectively. But it was so funny because at night we would sort of like, you know, compare notes between the teams. And one team was like, oh, geez, like our dogs just can't do this task at all. Like they won't go to either side. They're just like stuck at the front wanting to get the food, whatever. And like the other team was like, we're not having that problem. And so we went and we looked at our videos and one team, you know, was calling the dog like puppy here, puppy Mm -hmm. here. And then the other team, probably my team was going, (laughs) you know, and we were like, oh my goodness. And so then a a new experiment was born where we (laughs) all got together and in a standardized way, you know, varied what the dogs were experiencing. Um, and we found, you know, as again, probably no surprise that their arousal level was affecting the way that they were doing the task. Um, and what was really interesting is that we had a sample of our pet dogs from the Duke Canine Cognition Center and then our service dogs from Canine Companions. And with the service dogs, they actually did better with the higher level of arousal. Whereas the pet dogs that sent them over the top, they did worse. And our thinking there was that you have to think about like the temperament of the dog when they start the task, right? So like the dogs at Canine Companions, not only are they, you know, in training and like needing to be calm, but they've also been bred for that, right? This is the Canine Companions has a breeding program. Um, and so that is something that they that makes them a successful service dog you know they need to be appropriate in public um and so they almost needed that extra oomph to get them like into problem solving mode whereas the pet dogs admittedly more of a grab bag right um but it seemed like they were coming to the experiment kind of already hyped up and so when you add it on top of that you know it's kind of like read the room um (laughs) that that was a problem for them in general, obviously, these are all broad generalizations. But. I see a lot of parallels in what you're doing and nose work, honestly. Mm. How oh, interesting. Dog, right? <laughs> um, I mean, for my dog, when we go to nose work class, um, so he'll do his first run and, and find wherever the hide is. And then the next time he comes in, the first thing he does is check where the last one was before mm-hmm. before he goes to see, you know, before he starts to go to work. I'm going to just check here and, and make sure. And a fair mm-hmm. amount of our, our dogs do that. And the other thing is, uh, some dogs like the hype. If my dog comes in and you hype him, I mean, he's, he's all in for hype. And then we have some dogs that are like, you have to be quiet. You can't hype <laughs> or they get scared and they get nervous. Um, and the other thing is problem solving. So sometimes we'll put up barriers and you have to determine which side you go in, you know, the barrier. Um, uh, my dog just knocks the barrier down actually, and which I think might be intelligent because <laughs> it's the fastest route, but, but they right. do figure out how to get in. Um, and then how to get out. So it seems like there's a sort of a lot of parallels between these brain games and nose work and scent detection 
and a lot yeah. of what you're doing in your research. It's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's funny that knocking it over, we had a task with the guide dogs where, again, it was sort of like a maze detour type task. And um, we had two litter mates, which was funny, that their solution, and it's, you know, we tested like over 100 dogs, and it was just these two dogs, their solution was to just jump over (laughs) into my arms. It's like, well, it is a solution, right? Not the one we thought they were going to take. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Emily, didn't I read on, on your website that you had to wear a helmet for safety? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that was, um, we were testing, so we test these different populations of dogs, and we were testing um, IED detection dogs, who, it was funny because they're, you know, Labrador retrievers, as are the dogs at Canine Companions, but it's like night and day. And so, um, yeah, I was behind that the barrier I was describing earlier, which was like, you know, the shower curtain and it's on, um, oh, like a garment rack, you know, like to to hold it up. And so I'm behind it and they would just charge it. And, you know, the the metal poles would like fall over. And like, I think my advisors were concerned. I was like going to get a concussion. So they're like, you have to wear a helmet. But then when I went to test the same, you know, do the same test with the dogs at Canine Companions, here I am, you know, testing the like, mellowest Labrador retrievers you've ever met in your life in my like helmet and everyone's like what are you doing (laughs) (laughs) gotta control those variables yeah exactly (laughs) funny shall we move into um talking about the development of cognitive skills yes the other end of the lifespan absolutely so when we started doing this about yeah, I guess like 10 years ago now, a lot of the field of canine cognition, small as it may be, a lot of the focus was on adult dogs. Um, but we became really interested in asking some of these same questions of puppies. And the idea here is a couple of things. First of all, just how does cognition develop? Like what are puppies even capable of in the same ways that, you know, we might ask what skills do our two-year-olds have to our one-year-old, right? Like, um, and then also to see if there's any merit, and this is kind of the holy grail that people are always chasing and, you know, may or may not be successful. Um, this idea of what can, how a puppy behaves, tell us anything about how that dog is going to behave as an adult. And so, you know, as you can imagine, especially in a service dog context, this is the million dollar question. You know, obviously to a certain extent, there's going to be experiences that happen over the dog's life that can alter things. So it's never going to be certain. Um, But are there hints or even insofar as we can say, okay, we know that this is a pain point. This is something we need to work on that we need to intervene early or, or something like that. So that was a little bit of the impetus behind us looking at puppies. Um, and so about six, five, six years ago, we started a study with Canine Companions where we basically tested 168 puppies on these um, cognitive tasks that we had previously been having adult dogs perform and basically you know, see where, where the puppies stacked up. And, and the exciting part, I think the first sort of um, success was that the puppies could do it, <laughs> you know, regardless of their competency or whatever, but that they would participate and were able to make choices in the same ways that the adult dogs do. Obviously, you know, we split it up into puppy size pieces, right? So in an adult dog, when we do our full battery of about 15 tasks, we do it on the same day, the first 
session takes about an hour to an hour and a half. We give them an hour break at least. And then they do a second session of about an hour to an hour and a half with the puppies. Um, and we do this when they're about eight weeks old. They participate in three sessions uh, over the course of three days. And each of those sessions is about 45 minutes. Because after, and you know, plenty of play breaks, potty breaks. They also just potty whenever they feel like it. <laughs> um, you know, play with toys in between. But yeah, so, and then what has come of that is, is we get some really interesting findings. So I think one of the most interesting findings, a task that canine cognition researchers get really excited about and is sort of like the advent almost of this field, you know, 20 years ago, was this finding that dogs are really attuned to our social cues as humans, right? And so like the classic example, the quintessential canine cognition task is you have two hiding places, right? Overturned solo cups, flower pots, what have you. And there is a treat hidden under one, but not the other. And if you as the human point to the location where the treat is, dogs are really good at following that point and using that cue and, and finding the treat. Um, and we know that they're using the the cue as opposed to their noses, because I this is probably the number one question I get, because we always do a control condition where they have the exact same setup. There's two options. There's food under one. And we say, OK, go. So everything is the same, except there's no point. And they get it right 50% of the time. So they're at chance. Whereas if you point to it, that number rises to about 70% of the time in adults. So our, so we did this task in puppies. Um, and what was really cool is that we found that even at eight weeks of age, puppies are able to follow our points as well. And they're not quite at adult level. So they're maybe closer to, you know, 60, 65% of the time that they can follow the point, but it is above chance and at a very young age. And in our canine companions puppies, this is at the point where they're still living with their litter mates. So they haven't yet been placed with what we call a puppy raiser, but you know, the person that's, they're going to be one-on-one raised by for the first year and a half of their life. That hasn't happened yet. Um, so, you know, obviously they've seen humans, they've been around humans since the first day of their life, but it's not like they've had, you know, a ton of experience and yet they're able to, to do this quite early on, which is pretty exciting. Again, it, it almost makes me think of uh, another parallel to something like maybe agility, when we know that these dogs are taking our cues because mm. they follow our direction of how our feet are pointed, how our hip is turned, how our arm is moving, how our hand is moving, versus us yelling out commands like, go over, go under. They're following mm. your body language and the way you're turning your body. Uh, so it's really incredible that dogs, are, I think they spend more time observing us and trying to observing us and seeing what we're doing as body language versus us observing them. They're they're (laughs) constantly watching us for some kind of cue about Mm -hmm. what's going to happen next, you know, whether it's facial expression or body language. Yeah. And that's really interesting too. the, your point about, because this is something that has come up, right. Where it's not just our hands, it's, it's any part of our body, any cue that they think we're trying to give them. Because that's also another critique of this work sometimes where people are like, oh, yeah, they're just following your hand because that's where the food's coming from. And it's all just a big association. But in fact, really, it's that this seems to show that it's more about them truly taking our cues and realizing like 
we're trying to communicate something in, intentionally in these different ways. I, I was just going to comment because I think one of the big ahas, Emily, uh, was that ability to follow the mm-hmm. cues seems to be genetic, right? So that's yeah, what you're so that, kind of saying, yes. like, it, what they, these puppies being so young and having limited exposure to humans didn't have the nurture part of things to learn the correlation. So it, it showed a heritability in this ability to follow the, the point. Yes. And so it's actually two pieces. So absolutely what you just said about the, the fact that it emerges so young prior to this experience. And then even, and, and the heritability piece is also true, but that was actually even a second analysis, if you will, uh-huh. where basically the puppies that we tested, and I think it was in that paper, 375 puppies, so a bunch of puppies, and they were all from canine companions, which means that we knew their pedigrees and how they were all related to one another. And so that allows us to calculate what you just said, which is heritability. Mm. And so heritability, for those that don't know, is simply referring to the variation in the skill um, that can then be attributed to genetics. So what's also implied in there is that, you know, not every puppy is amazing at this. So we have individual variation. and But what's explaining it, or a, a lot of it, is the genetics. And that's because we know that it's heritable at almost 50%. So obviously that means there's also a big chunk of it that's not, that is environmental. Um, but that is a very high number when it comes to the amount of genetics that contribute to a given trait. And it's cool because it's a behavioral trait and that's been hard to pin down, right? Like we know certain diseases have higher, right? Or like certain health traits, it's easier to look at the heritability, partly because it's just easier to measure, right? It's just more straightforward of like, you know, how tall are you? Well, let me get out my ruler, right? Versus what's your ability to follow a point? It's a little more nebulous to pin Mm -hmm. down, which is why it's important to have these standardized tests and have everyone go, you know, have the same measuring stick, if you will, be able to look at the relationships and, and calculate that heritability. Really cool. Well, and and, and listening to you talk, I mean, I I think it just is, uh, you know, reading between the lines, you know, talking about all the details, you know, the number of dogs or puppies or, you know, seniors involved in this, the, Mm -hmm. you know, the the accounting for all these variables, you know, that they're similar ages, that they came from, you know, similar Mm -hmm. uh, breeding facilities, you know, and so the complexity of this research, even though to someone looking in on the outside, you know, you mentioned videos and I watched a few years online. I mean, it just looks like a lot of fun for everybody, not just the dogs. And <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, you know, there's, a, it's very strict and there's a lot of, you know, protocol and things to make this, you know, truly scientific research. And just wanted to, to say too, at my old job, we used to have trivia questions that we would, um, put up a new one every week and as a point of discussion. And I loved it because I always learned something. And one thing that I remember learning was that very few animals in the world can actually Mm -hmm. follow a point. Dogs are one of them. So dogs have a higher, correct me if I'm wrong, Emily, but dogs have a higher ability to follow a point than even like uh, monkeys, chimpanzees, apes that we would think would be, you know, genetically, you know, closer to us in terms of DNA and such. Yes, that is correct. So yeah, our closest living relatives are chimpanzees and bonobos. Um, And yeah, so chimps, you basically have to teach them 
how to follow a point. Whereas, you know, over like hundreds and hundreds of trials, whereas the other thing about our tasks, they're all spontaneous or quick, right? So the idea is that the dogs aren't learning over the course of the task because it's only 12 trials. And we can actually look and say like, oh, look, statistically, there is no improvement from the first trial to the last trial, which is also true. So it's, again, implying that it's just there, right? They get it. Some of them, right? Then there's the dogs that don't get it. (laughs) But as a species, right, population-wide, they can do this in ways that our closest living relatives can't, which is really fascinating. And I think speaks to kind of like the evolutionary side of things, right? Where there's, you know, like genetic relatedness, but then there's also over the course of domestication, we've just lived, you know, our lives have been so intertwined with yeah. dogs yeah. that this has become part of it, you know? Right. And did they say like the, the natural selection was kind of like, you know, those wolves, if you will, that got along better, you know, with, with the people. And there was kind of a mutual benefit uh, to both the people and, and the wolf. And then, you know, so it was kind of selected over time. And so you could oh, see right, right. Yes, yeah. traits would, you know, maybe come through. There's definitely, there's, so there's different theories of like, yeah, yeah. Of death metric, but I think either way that this could be right. It's either it could have been selected for intentionally or even sometimes, right, uninten- like you select for other things and, and you kind of get this along for the ride, potentially. Yep. So I don't know that we know exactly what's happening, but there was like some sort of selection happening, right? Right. Um, unclear if it was how intentional it was or not, but we're seeing kind of the result. So, uh, Emily, as we're wrapping up here, I know another uh, big study, and you alluded to it earlier, was um, kind of talking about the maternal style um, of of the the mom dogs and how that maybe influenced uh, their their puppies their litters mm-hmm. and I guess a couple of things that that I read and took from it that I found were just fascinating was that um, one that if it was based on the feeding position of the mom. And mm-hmm. if he was lying down and the puppies could access their the milk easily, they didn't necessarily prove to be the best guide dogs down the line. Whereas if the mom was sitting up and the puppies mm-hmm. had to work for it a little bit, they proved to be more successful in, in that program. And so I think the conclusion was that maybe like a little, a little stress early on kind of, uh, shape them into being uh, better guide dogs? Yes. Yeah, definitely. So, well, I mean, I say definitely, that is one hypothesis, <laughs> but, but yes, we did find that, that, right. We called it vertical nursing versus like lateral nursing. There were associations again with the puppies that experience, yeah, that potentially more effortful type of nursing seem to have better outcomes. And I think that also goes hand in hand with what we sort of found Overall, when you just look at mothering style, wrapping in nursing, proximity, licking and grooming, contacting, right? So like you could take all those behaviors and kind of almost like rate the moms, right? Like who's the most interactive to the least interactive. And again, we actually found the puppies that came from those almost like least interactive mothers grew up to be the most successful guide dogs, which on one hand is is probably, if I'm being honest, maybe the opposite of what I would have thought. Yeah. It is counterintuitive, but then it's like, well, maybe that's fostering the resilience that 
that guide dogs in particular need to do their job, to be making these independent decisions, willfully disobeying some of the commands mm. of their handler. So, and, and again, we don't know, and there's probably multiple things at play to, to figure out like the exact mechanisms, but that is definitely an association that we saw, which is cool because, you know, we, we measured that maternal style in the second week of the dog's lives. And then this is, you know, having some barrier, at least associated with, um, an event that's occurring up to two and a half years later, the impact. Yeah. And you were saying like, you know, if you can learn these things early on, then mm-hmm. you have a better idea in terms of setting that particular dog up for success in that program. And, and yes. when I was reading about this and, you know, like the, the mothers that, you know, were licking a lot and then those dogs aren't doing as well. And I remember seeing a picture of a, of a mom that was actually outside, kind of like the wealthy area <laughs> and so forth. It's like looking on from, from afar and she's like, yeah, you got this. But my, yes. um, my agility instructor, uh, breeds border collies and, she, you know, she brings them in sometimes to the agility center and such. And I saw them doing little things and she would describe little things that would create little stresses like you're talking about as, you know, something that's kind of coming down the pike in terms of breeders and things. So like blowing in their face and, you know, turning them on their back and, mm-hmm. you know, just different types of things that would, uh, you know, again, kind of intuitively, you think, well, that might be not such a good thing, but ultimately it leads to a more sound, confident dog later on because these water qualities that are doing agility or, you know, herding sheep or whatever have to be independent and confident and, and know, uh, you know, what work is at hand. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. So it it also makes me think of, I I have just one story to tell in in my business. Um, I actually treated a few dogs that were in service programs, you know, whether it was, um, you know, a CNI dogs or, or other and, um, had, uh, not made the cut, you know, it's a very rigorous, mm-hmm. uh, thing. And I remember this one uh, dog, Willie, who's a, a black lab. He was awesome. I mean, like the best pet ever. And I asked his, his now owner because he was, he was no longer in the program you know, so what was his deal? Like, and you know, why, why didn't Willie make it? And she said, you know, he made it to the very final stages when they have to go out into the community. And uh, so he was in Boston and he was leading uh, his person. He was confounded by glass doors. So, you know, kind of like you're talking about the, you know, the sheer curtain or whatever in some of your studies. Yeah. Yeah. You cannot differentiate according to her, between like the glass door and the window next to it and oh. how to lead. I know. It's like so sad. <laughs> really? <laughs> well, I always pick the wrong side. You know, you have a 50-50 chance, yeah, you know, and the sign will even say like open here. And I pick like the wrong side of the door. So I don't know what that says about my cognitive abilities, but so. <laughs> All right. Well, as uh, as we're wrapping up here, Emily, is there anything you'd like to uh, leave the audience with? Any pearls of wisdom? Yeah. I mean, I think when it comes down to it, our research is is just focused around this concept of the more that we understand about a dog's behavior and you know their problem solving skills. So both in terms of their innate tendencies, but also how the environment might be playing a role. Then I think that just better positions us to set them up for success. So and I think that's that's the goal, right? Right, right. 
Yeah. And whether yeah. they're working dogs or our pet dogs, you know, the more we, mm-hmm. as Kathy says, the more we know, the more mm-hmm. we grow. Oh man, this has been fantastic. I, I know that, um, your area of study, you know, way back when was I think psychology and English and, and I was a, mm-hmm. <laughs> a double major in biology and psychology. And that's one of the things that I've loved about switching from doing PT with humans to physical rehabilitation with dogs, because I feel like mm-hmm. it really intertwines, you know, those, those two things, you know, the science piece and the biology, but yet the, all the psychology behavior stuff. And I just love this. Thank Yay. you. Thank you. Thank you. Can you tell people, can you tell our audience where they can find you? Oh, sure. So I'm on Twitter. Um, you can find me at Dr. Emily Bray. And I also have a website, uh, www.emilyebray.com. And I keep that pretty up to date with our publications and links to things. So yeah. Emily, thank you so much for being here with us today. We learned so much. Thank you so much for having me. I had so much fun. It was awesome. Thanks, Emily. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed our show. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at Petability Podcast. For more information about Kathy's books and living with blind dogs, please visit EnableYourPet.com. Thank you, and please tune in next time.